0: it's impossible for this week for you to have made it through the week without any news coming to you in relationship to Afghanistan. And uh, those of you who are part of the Franklin Graham prayer messaging service would have gotten or received uh, an email from him encouraging uh, Christians here in America to pray. And so I want to do that. I want to take some time to do that. But just to, to give you a sense of what's happening there in, in, in terms of being a Christian and living underneath the, the oppressive, restrictive nature and control of the Taliban, the, in, during the 1990s, the Taliban ruled, as you know, with a, with a heavy hand, extreme interpretation of the Sharia law, and they imposed brutal. Rules not only for women, but also violent punishment for infidels. And fill in the blank of infidels, that is another word for Christians. Anyone who is opposed to Islamic faith, the Muslim faith, would be suspect or subject to, to violent punishment, namely death. Brother Sam of Open, Open Doors Ministry, I was just reading and uh, this was posted just the other day, just on Friday, I believe, He's the open doors field director for Asia, and he asks for prayers saying, these are uncertain times for Christians in Afghanistan. It's absolutely dangerous. We don't know what the next months will bring, what kind of implementation of Sharia law we will see, but we continue to ask you to intercede for our brothers and sisters. They are facing insurmountable adversity. We must pray without ceasing. There was an interview that was done with a local believer named Hamid he shares his fears about the Taliban and that they will eliminate the Christian population he says this we know a Christian believer who we've been working with in the north he's a leader and we've lost contact with him because his city has fallen to the Taliban there are three other cities that we have lost contact with our Christian believers Some of the believers are known in their communities. People know they have converted from Islam to Christianity, and they are considered apostates, and the penalty of of that is death. The Taliban are famous for carrying out that punishment. I think it's timely for for this to take place in Afghanistan. And I I don't know where your heart has been in relationship to the conflict there or how frustrated you might be about uh, the the policies that have happened and pulling out and and what we've left behind. But as, as I was praying through it this week, God's Spirit just directed my heart to think, Andrew, there are brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now who are experiencing immense persecution. Pray for them. So I want to do that. And I hope our hearts are burdened the suffering that's taking place there and I hope it stands as a reminder and a warning for us as believers we begin to enter into a whole new section of first Peter that the repeated succession of words will come to the surface suffering is built into the Christian life (laughs) and that is about as un-American as you get by the way It's timely for us, and we need to remember what God has purposed for us in terms of spiritual growth and being able to experience the glory that we've been talking about since the beginning, since the beginning of this year. The glory of Christ, seeing His glory, not, not only in the world, but seeing His glory up close and personal. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into our study for today. God, thank you that you care about your people wherever they are. Thank you that you care about people who are going through good times. Thank you that you care about people who are going through hard times. That you are especially near to the brokenhearted. And you save such as have a contrite spirit, as the psalmist says. That you are sweetly interested in the suffering of your people and that you are there you have not abandoned them you are there so god i pray your presence would be especially close to these dear brothers and sisters today however isolated however scattered however remote however distant they may feel however set apart from their culture really they are a A living illustration of of the audience that we've been studying for the last several months. This group of exiles and strangers who, who had been experiencing significant and severe suffering for the sake of obedience and love for Jesus. And so God, I pray that you would bring this picture home to us. I pray that you would help to remind us not only of the suffering of our brothers and sisters and that we would be mindful of them and pray for them and, and plead on behalf of them for strength and faith, for gospel witness, for change of heart of communities there in Afghanistan, that you would use their confident, courageous faith as a testimony to the beautiful picture of Christ's suffering on the cross and his subsequent resurrection and glory with the Father in heaven. Be with them, Lord. Encourage them, comfort them, help them. And God, for us, I pray that you would help us to prepare our hearts, not only this morning as we look into your word, but that you would prepare us for this current day and for the coming day when the suffering and trials and difficulties of this world will continue to press in, may we be faithful. And may we see Jesus show up in our lives as we commit ourselves to following after your will and being submissive in the midst of suffering. Be pleased with us this morning as we look into your word. Be pleased with the results of our life as we leave this place May it change our Monday, what we will study this morning in your word. May it make a difference in how we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this uh, new section of Scripture that begins in chapter 2, verse 13, and runs all the way to the end of chapter 3, is incredibly relevant. Perhaps the, the most relevant in all of the New Testament for our specific particular situation that we find ourselves in. If you ever found yourself in the last 24 months saying, well, it's not safe. Things are a little risky. Uh, it's kind of dangerous out there. I- I'm kind of afraid. Then I want you to understand that First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to the end of chapter 3 will encourage you and call you to bold confidence in a sovereign God. If you found yourself saying in the last 24 months, I have rights, I have freedoms, I need to stand up, I need to resist, then I want you to know that 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to the end of chapter 3 will call you to godly submission, for the sake of Christ, to all the authorities that are over you, which is pointing to the greater authority, the authority of God, the sovereign, preeminent God who is over all. Your life is a picture of Christ through submission. If you found yourself saying in the last 24 months, they are oppressing me, life is not fair, I'm at a disadvantage. People are unjust in prejudice. Systems are against me. I want you to understand that 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to the end of chapter 3 is going to call you to courageous faith, courageous confidence in a God who is just and who will work things out. All things are worked out in eternity by the just God. Entrust your injustice to him. That's what we're going to find in this section, the statements of theology that Peter has brought out and laid the foundations for us in chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2, now he's transitioning to apply those deep and rich truths of theology to our practical life. From this point on, First Peter is going to be immensely practical. So, so if you've been waiting for something that you can apply to your life, this is the time. From this point on, this is where Peter's going to say he's going to press in. He's going to get a little, well, it's going it's to be a little confrontive. It's gonna, it may hurt a little bit. But there's, there's going to be a call of attention to eternity. He's going to call our attention to confidence, not in the present, but a, but a confidence in eternity. That God is going to work things out as the sovereign one. It's going to condition your responses. It's going to to help you remember the things that you have learned. That he is sovereign. That your faith is fixed. That your identity is established. That your future is certain. (laughs) That your citizenship is not here on earth but in heaven. And that your needs will be met. Because your greatest need was met in Jesus. So so every secondary need, every need that is smaller than the eternal need of salvation is met, will be met by him because he is a good and kind and gracious God who will meet your needs. We've brought into the notion that if things are bad in your life then you've done something wrong. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like, well, my car broke down, so let me review this past week. What, what, what happened this past week or this past month that I did wrong? I stepped out of the balance, and God's smack, smacking me down. Or you get bad news from the doctor, and maybe it's even the kind of news that's going to change your life forever. And you say, okay, what what, 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 what is it? What, what was it in my life that I did for God to, to do this to me? How have I stepped out? Why am I suffering? It's not supposed to be this way. I, I've done all the right things. I've checked all the right boxes. I'm supposed to enjoy the benefits of favor with God. That's what God's grace is, right? His favor on me. Maybe you get laid off or maybe you get cut from the team. Something goes wrong. But this is the warped view of life that Jesus is addressing in his very first public sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And and I just want to put this up for you briefly so you can kind of see what what Jesus says in this sermon and, and who he commends. He says, by the way, are you seeing this? Okay, good, because I'm not. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now that's un American. <laughs> who wants to be poor? But he, he applies uh, poverty to a, a spiritual situation. Okay? We're the people in America. We want to be rich. So we, we don't want poverty. We don't want to be poor, especially in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are, and here it is, persecuted for righteousness' sake. We're used to striving. We're used to going after it. We're we're used to to doing what it takes to get what we want, right? And, and, And what Jesus begins to try to help the people understand is it actually works in reverse, It works the other way around because what happens is you're not looking for immediate benefits here. You're looking for the benefits of what's coming later in heaven with God. That's what matters. And so what will these people inherit? Well, we see they're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. We see that they're going to be comforted. They're going to inherit the earth. They're going to be satisfied, receive mercy. They're going to see God. They're going to be called the sons of God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those are all the things that we're after. Those are all the things that we really want deep down inside, but we're going about it all the wrong way because we're going after it on our own strength. And God says, no, it doesn't work that way. Because you can only have those things one way. You can only have those things when you submit to me and so when life goes bad for you don't worry there's better things in store and God has a greater objective for your life than the here and now put things in perspective stop striving and then it all kind of comes to a head in Matthew chapter 5 verses 11 and 12 when he says this he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I would dare say there is no passage of Scripture that is more relevant for the church than this one. And so there is no section of Scripture that I would commend you to press in like no other time you've pressed in this year in, 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 in warming your heart and in stirring your affections for the things that the Bible says. And so we put this together. It's, you know, it's, it's adequate. It's not it's not great, but it at least help you get in to the text. And I there's, theres several that are still out there. I would encourage you to pick one up. This is I think one of the best ways that you can get into the study and you can, you can maximize what happens on a Sunday morning. Study to show yourself approved to God. A workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, so press in to what the word says. Maximize this experience because there is no other section of scripture, I would dare say, that is more pertinent, more necessary for us than this one. Chapter 2, verse 13. To the end of chapter 3. So this morning, there there are four words that are going to change your Monday. Four words, two that are implied in this passage, and two that are explicit in this passage that we're going to look at this morning. Four words that are going to change your Monday. When you go back to work, when you go back to the rhythms of life, when you go back to your routine, these four words will shape the way you live. The first word is the word glory. The word glory. And I would encourage you, if you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to try to, to dig into this. And, uh, and, and by the way, I, I would encourage you that are here at the 9 o'clock service to, to uh to go and, and to watch the, the baptism that's going to happen at the 11 o'clock service. So um, you're going to get the full version today, all right? The full version of the message. Uh, the, the 11 o'clock group is going to get probably the 20-minute the version. So if you would rather hear the 20-minute version, you can come back to that one, I suppose, or you can hear the whole thing. Here's what it says, First Peter chapter 2, we're in 18 to 20. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, that when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We're in our third section of this study. We've already walked through the first two parts of 1 Peter, and we'll address that in just just a moment here. But I I, I want to remind you of what we mean when we talk about glory, because uh, some of you have, have just come to to Maranatha, and I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. When we talk about glory, this is a helpful quote from Paul Tripp. He says this. He says, glory isn't so much a thing as it is a description of a thing. Glory isn't part of God. It's all that God is. Every aspect of who God is and every part of what God does is glorious. Now, that's helpful. And maybe in in summary, just to kind of condense it down to, to one phrase that you can maybe take home with you we have said that the glory is the manifestation of God's presence glory is how God shows up in the world, glory is how we, we see God, not just, not just his essence of who he is but we see his nature and how God responds and, and, and who God is in terms of his attributes Psalm 19:1 says the heavens declare the glory of God and the and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. When you see the stars, when you see the heavens, you say, wow, something powerful did this. There's some, some divine being, and, and you may not know who that being is, but, but you know that something out there created something spectacular. And he is big, and he is strong. He is infinite. But then when Jesus came to earth, Jesus helped us to understand the, the true nature and essence, the, the glory of God was put on full display. Hebrews 1, chapter, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says this. He, speaking of Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power After making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When we see Jesus, we see God. When we see Jesus, we see glory in that the manifest presence and display of God in its fullness came through the person and nature, the ministry of Jesus Christ. We see and know glory by knowing Jesus. So we've been walking through this. We 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 the first section of this was captured by glory. Remember, I was uh, asking one of my kids, okay, what what, what were the, the the two major themes that, that led up to this? And they couldn't remember. So that's why we're coming back to this. It's okay. We talked about being captured by glory. It's the first 12 verses of chapter one. It, it's all about what 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 God has done to to call you to Himself in salvation. And we've said, like it's what we see in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's not enough for you to have access to the gospel. It's not enough for you to, to know something about who Jesus is. The light has to shine in your heart. It has to draw you into relationship. You have to be captured by the wonder of who God is. That's what we mean by being captured by glory. Then in chapter 1, verses 13 to 2, 12, we talked about transformed by glory. And so, because you are a believer, you, you, you can't stay that way, you can't remain. Something has to be different inside. There's something that takes place through the power of the Holy Spirit to, to change you once you're saved into somebody who looks like Jesus. There's this metamorphosis that happens. That's why we used a butterfly to kind of picture what's taking place here. In both sections, the word glory or glorify is used at least three or four times. In the first section, we saw it in chapter 1, verse 7 and 11, and also verse 8. In this section, we see the word glory in chapter 1, verse 21, and 1, verse 24, in chapter 2, verse 12. It's a reminder of the work of the Holy Spirit in, in transforming us from one degree of glory to the other that we see in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, And above all, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to the other for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The work of the Spirit in your life to change you into an image, a reflection of Himself. We're going to look at at, uh, the reflection of glory in just a moment. But but in the final section, I don't have a graphic for it, but we're going to talk about being strengthened by glory. Glory. We're going to conclude our time there. And and if we saw glory show up in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we're going to really see glory show up in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4, verse 11 and 13 and 14. Chapter 5, verses 1, 4 and 10. And then the word glorify in chapter 4, verses 11 and 16. God intends to strengthen us with his presence so the glory of God is evident in your life. But here in this section of chapter 2, verses 13 to the end of chapter 3, you will not find the word glory. You will not find the word glorify. It's in section 1, in section 2, in section 4. It is not in this section. So, so why are we talking about being uh, reflecting the glory of God? Because it's here. Reflection of the glory is still in this section. It just shows up in a different way. It's not because the glory is not there, but because Peter intends to spotlight Jesus and particularly draw a focus to Jesus' glory through suffering. Because that, by the way, is where the fullest concentration of glory happens in all of history. That's where we see the character and nature of God show up in radiant display, in full view. We see the showcase of the glory of God in its fullest degree on the cross. That is where His justice and mercy meet. That is where His holiness and forgiveness meet. That is where His sovereignty and submission meet. That is where His power and humility meet. That is where His hatred of sin and His love for sinners meet. They all intersect at the cross. That's where glory is. And that's where glory will show up in this passage. As we talk about glory, we're going to talk about the work of Jesus in suffering. This actually becomes now our reference word, our substitute word in this section for glory. The substitute word for glory in chapter 2, verse 13, to the end of chapter 3, is not glory, but suffering. You want to experience the glory of God? You want to experience the presence of God? Press in to suffering. And it will only happen as we begin to walk through these steps, these things that we're learning that that Peter is spelling out for us, and and preeminently it, 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 it comes in terms of submission, which is submission not just to authorities, but especially submission to God. And submission to God is another way to describe faith in God, because that is what God is after. The just, the righteous will live by faith. And so the just and righteous will live by submission. And the just and righteous will live in suffering. So our first word is glory, but really it's the word suffering because that's our reference word. That's this first word. So tomorrow when you go to work and things don't seem fair, tomorrow when you are facing some injustice wherever you might be, somebody cuts you off, somebody steps in your path, somebody takes what belonged to you, somebody steals something from your house, whatever it might be, whatever injustice you may experience, embrace it for the sake of glory. Embrace it for the sake of the gospel. Embrace it for the sake of this picture, this beautiful picture of Christ suffering for you. And we'll see this preeminent in, preeminently in Jesus. Suffering being our new glory word. It shows up in, in two ways. Glory and glorify, or excuse me. Suffering shows up in two Greek words you, you have there in your notes. These two words will show up 16 times in First Peter. And I just want to show you this graphic. Okay? This is why I think, not that graphic. There we go, that one. The first one. There we go. Okay, 16 times. It can, it's kind of hard to read. It's a little small. But, but I want you to see this little teeny tiny book of 1 Peter is like far and away the, the greatest number of uses of suffering than any other New Testament book you could read. That's why this is particularly relevant for us. And the next graphic will show you now in comparison with a number of words. So if Peter has a lot less Fewer words than some of these other books. Here's how Peter's uh, concentration of words of suffering uh, compared to the number of words that he uses in his entire letter. Peter wants to spotlight suffering because glory only comes one way. It only comes through faith in a suffering Savior. And we're we're going to look at more at that more next week but i want to just draw your attention to to how peter's been laying the groundwork for this already in first peter chapter 1 verse 11 you have your bibles right okay so so look at this with me it says inquiring what person or time the spirit of christ in them was indicating when he predicted here it is the sufferings of christ and the subsequent glories. see how they go hand in hand (laughs) they're almost synonymous terms And then in 1 Peter 4, verse 13, Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. In terms of suffering and glory that are synonymous. You can't have one without the other. Chapter 5 verse 1 says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. First Peter chapter 5 verses 9 and 10. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal life, Glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You want to experience the presence of God in your life? The manifest presence and power of God in your life? Embrace suffering for the sake of glory, for the sake of the gospel. Put it on display. Let people see your willingness to embrace hard things for the sake of the gospel. So our first word is glory. Our second word is submit. Here's another very un-American word. Submit, he says there. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. There are some conditions that he builds into this understanding of submission this understanding of being subject. Peter wants you to recognize that there are no exceptions and so he, he paints things in the worst possible circumstances. He wants you to understand that there are no scenarios in which you should not and will not submit and I want to, uh, what's the word? Let's qualify? Thank you. I want to qualify that. Your submission to authorities is submission to God. Okay? So, so the only exception then is when the authorities over your life are telling you to disobey God. Okay? So, so there, there are some, some qualifications. But, but you are to submit in the worst possible circumstances. We've already last week talked about the circumstance of government and, and, and Pastor David did a phenomenal job uh, discussing the significance of our submission to them. And by the way, Peter is writing in a day where, who is the emperor? Nero. You know what Nero did? You know how Nero put Christians in the Colosseum and had them torn to pieces by the animals? How he put them in Colosseums with the gladiators and had them hacked to death? How he had them crucified along the roads? how he uh, had them in his parties, covered them with pitch, set them on fire to light his garden parties. That's the guy we're supposed to submit to. And, and by the way, the, the guy who had already confiscated their property uh, of this audience right here in First Peter, who had exiled them to, to new parts of the, of the country, the Roman Empire, who probably had taken many of them, their wives and their kids as slaves, which now pulls this down into this new part of verses 18 to 20. So so Peter is not talking about a government that is in any way just in how it treats its its citizens. And yet, the command remains. (laughs) He wipes away all, all of the exceptions. He wipes away all of the circumstances and exception clauses and says, submit for the sake of obedience to God, trusting His sovereignty. No circumstance could have been worse than being a slave. He uses the word servants here, which is oiketes. It's it's the word for a household Slave. And, and the instruction that Peter will give in verses 18 to 20 uh, compare very similarly with the instruction that Paul will give in Ephesians chapter uh, 6, verses 5 to 8. He says, bondservants, servants, and he actually uses the word doulos, which is the word slave, obey your earthly masters with all fear and trembling, with sincerity of heart, as you would Christ. That, that's what's in view. Obeying, Masters is not obeying a person, it's obeying God. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants or slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bond servant or slave or free. So that's kind of where I want to make our correlation, okay? So there's nobody in this room who's a slave, but you are servants or employees of a particular employer. And so at the very end of this, I, I want to... Paul has made this correlation. I, I want to make this correlation to us as well. So you are free uh, employees of, of, a, of a master, of an employer. You have the same obligation. You are not free in this sense because you are under the authority of a boss, an employer, and you are ultimately under the authority of your God, who is sovereign. I'm not going to talk about the rightness or wrongness of slavery in the Bible. Uh, that's a whole other dis, uh, discussion or conversation, but, but, I, but I, I think Peter is addressing this because this was a real issue. And, and Paul addresses it in almost every letter he writes. It The... The, 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 the Roman Empire in the first century culture was saturated in slavery. And what's interesting is Peter uh, nor Paul tell slaves to run. They tell them, submit. They don't tell them resist. They say, submit and work with reverent fear, with good will, as you're serving God. There are no circumstances that are the exception for your willing submission. And notice he says here, he presses into it even more, not only in the worst possible circumstance, but also with all fear. It's also the word phobos, which we have used the word respect, but I want you to understand, servants be subject to your masters with all respect. Who are they respecting? Who are they fearing? I think it's natural when you take this verse in isolation to say well they're respecting and fearing their master right and and that would be a fair correlation because Paul uses the same kind of language when he's talking in Ephesians chapter 6 but here Peter continues to press in to the spotlighting and the showcasing of Jesus he has just said in verse 17 fear God He says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And so now he's spilling that in to this new uh, set of verses. And, And the fear that you have for God is the same fear that you have in this situation. You love, you serve your masters because of fear, not of them, but because of fear of God. You fear God. And because of your reverent, holy fear of who God is and your love and confidence in his sovereignty over all things his providence in placing you in the hardest of circumstances you fear him by doing what he has called you to do in terms of submitting to injustice submitting with all fear notice also they are submitting in the face or in the midst of injustice that's spelled out for us at the end of verse 18, 19 and 20. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. There are no exceptions. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, injustice, This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. God delights in your submission to authorities because he delights in your faith and confidence in him. (laughs) That's what's at stake. Do do you trust God or not trust God? Do, Do you believe that he's in control or do you not believe that he's in control? Do you believe that he is good or do you not believe that he is good? Do you believe that he's arranged these circumstances for his glory or you care more about your own comfort? And let me tell you, I'm speaking for myself just as much as I might be speaking to you, okay? Because here's where the rubber meets the road, okay? The rubber meets the road when, and by the way, all of these examples are things that have happened to my family, Think of how you respond when your child has to sit the bench. How do you deal with an authority, the coach, who won't play your kid? And they may be the best player on the team. Think about how you respond when your child has to miss recess because the rest of the class is talking. Think of how you respond when your child is not able to walk in their graduation ceremony because the principal wants to make an example of her. Sorry, I gave that one away. Think of how you respond when an administration decides that even though your child got an A in the class, they're going to be held back because it's in the best interest of the school. How are you setting an example of submission for your children? Because by the way, they're going to follow in your steps. They're going to do what you are commending. And if your heart is not aligned to God, they're going to blow it. They're not going to get it right if you didn't get it right. How are you conditioning your children, your spouse, the people who are watching you in the workplace? How are they going to see the gospel show up in your confidence in a sovereign God that we just sang about this morning. Do you trust him? Then submit to the authorities that God has placed over your life. Suffer well for the sake of the gospel. If you believe that he's sovereign, you believe that he's in control, if you believe that he's the one who raises up and puts down leaders, then your heart and life is going to align itself with the standard he has set. And God is not silent about the seriousness of whether or not you follow through because on four occasions through this section of scripture he's going to say emphatically this is the will of God. 1 Peter 2.15 this is the will of God for you. First Peter 2.21 into this you have been called and that's next week's message. First Peter three nine to this you were called first Peter 3 seventeen if it should be God's will you want to know God's will for your life? well, guess what we're going to hear it in rapid succession throughout our time in section three, chapter two, verse 13 to the end of chapter three. you want to know God's will for your life? It begins here and, and if you're wondering what god's mystery, uh, mystery will for your life might be then maybe we need to begin to follow the things that are clear because God is not going to reveal the hidden things for you unless you are faithful to do the things that are clear. Submit to authority for the sake of the glory of God. Now notice what submission in the face of suffering accomplishes. Why do you suffer? Why do you submit here's the incentive. This is our our third word and we'll have to move through these last two quickly. We'll pick this up again next week because we're going we're to see this through the end of chapter five. So we, we, we have lots of time to, to be reminded of these, these truths. This next word is grace. <laughs> Peter builds this in in two occasions in three verses. Because when you When you face suffering, it sure doesn't feel like God's grace. As a matter of fact, when you face suffering, maybe the first question that goes on in your mind is, God, where are you? Do you you even care? Uh, Do you really love me? But Peter wants you to know, God's grace shows up in your life when things are hard. And I would dare say, God's grace shows up best in your life when things are hard. He says it in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow. He says in verse 20, when you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And I, I want you to know that the, the, the word that's translated gracious thing is actually one word in the Greek it's the word grace. This is grace. Grace. Really? It's not the kind of grace I thought I was getting into. Ephesians you know, 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved. That's the kind of grace I want. I, I want the, the, the favor of God in my life. I want things to go well. I want the gifts of God. But the greatest gift of God to you is the gift of himself. The greatest gift of God to you is the gift of his presence in your life. The gift of his power in your life. And, and and we see this sweetly in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Remember, uh, Peter is—or Paul is praying, God, I got this thorn in my, my flesh. Please take this away. I can't do it anymore. And God says, well, guess what? I got something for you. You've been praying for this. I'm going to give it to you in the midst of hard things. It only comes one way. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power Is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. When you hear the word grace, I want you to think about presence of God and the power of God in your life. And we could go to a number of verses that would substantiate that. We don't have time this morning to do. But I want you to know God's grace is his favor, but his greatest favor on you is him showing up in your life. Hebrews eleven, six. 6, I don't think I have this verse, says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever, how does it go? For whoever would, would draw near to God, right? Let him believe that he exists and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You want to experience God's presence in your life? Ask God, for opportunities, for appropriate steps of faith. God, what do I need to do today to see your presence in my life? How do I need to embrace hard things today so I can see your power overcoming my flesh today? How can I enjoy your grace to me today? That's grace. And it's God's gift to you And it's God's gift to the world. And we don't have time to to really cover that in fullness, but I I want you to know that that if you reject this kind of grace, it doesn't just impact you. It affects everybody in your circle because they won't be able to see that grace either. They won't be able to see the presence of God in your life if you say, "Huh, I'm going to do it my way. It's a little too hard to do your way. God's gift you and God's gift to the world. Finally, and we'll keep coming back to this one because this is a word that, that will come in in continual succession as we walk through this. How can you do this? How can you submit and how can you suffer? You can do it only one way. You can only do it as you pray. You can only do it as you pray, and and, and that is the response that God calls us to, that's a response that Peter will, will come back to time and time and time again. When you encounter hard things, go to the one who's able to do something about it. Go to, go to the one who's, who's in control. Talk to him. Why is it, if you're anything like me, that's the last resort why is it that I want to talk to administrators? I want to write letters. I want to protest. I want to resist. I want to rebel. I want to, I want to have my way, do my thing. I'm going to push back and claim my rights, but I don't pray. Well, I want you to know we have lots of opportunities for you to pray. We have a group that meets at 8 o'clock every Sunday morning to pray for the things that are happening in this service and throughout the the activities of the day. Would you consider being a part of the spiritual furnace that will get things done among us as we ask God to work on our behalf? Or on his behalf, I should say. He graciously uses the things that happen here at Maranatha Baptist to advance his cause. On Tuesday mornings, there's a Bible study and prayer that happens with a group of young men. And uh, in the next audience, I may invite them to be part of that. Would be, be okay? Okay. I want you to know that various times throughout the week, sometimes Tuesdays, sometimes Thursdays, sometimes Fridays, right, Britton? There's a prayer group that happens for men. It is a sweet, enriching, powerful, refreshing. What other word can I use? Spend time with God's people and pray. There's also a prayer group that happens on Wednesday evenings, not here, it happens in a home. And I imagine there are prayer groups that are happening that I don't even know about. But, it, but if we're going to be a church that sees God work sovereignly, we must be a church that prays. and we must be a church that prays together. That's what the early church did. It's what Jesus commends and promises with results. I'll close with this. Matthew 7, 7 and 8. He says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you for whoever asks receives. Whoever seeks finds. Whoever knocks, the door will be open." Right? And four times in the final meal of Jesus, the night before he's crucified, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, I'm going to do it. And then he says it again, whatever you ask in my name, I'm going to do it. Whatever you ask in my name, I'm going to do it. Whatever you ask in my name, I'm going to do it. But we don't ask. We want to take matters in our own hands. We, we don't take things to the sovereign God who's in, who's in control of everything. We don't trust him. And, and by the way, if you did your study guide, just a great reminder that that, What we would consider to be a barrier for gospel ministry, Paul is put in prison and he says it actually served to advance the gospel. Who could have dreamed of that? The master plan of God. Paul submitting to unjust imprisonment does the opposite of what you would expect because that's what God does. Submit to him, trust his sovereignty. Let's pray. Oh God, as we take these four words into Monday, I pray that you would help us because they are so distant from us. They are so unapart of our DNA, our structure, our impulse. So God, may the gospel show up in our life as we submit to the power of our supreme God and trust that you are working all things out for your good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you this week as you go.